Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to another Empire Podcast interview special. And this one is a bit special, folks, and a little bit interviewee too. So basically, I went to St Andrews in Scotland a few weeks ago and I came away with three things. First, a rekindling of my love of golf. My hotel was right by the old course at St Andrews, the home of golf. And well, one thing led to another and pretty soon my wife and I are playing a lot of golf at the weekends. Secondly, a deep and abiding love of Tunnock's Caramel Bars, which may be the best thing Scotland has ever given to the world. And they gave us Sean Connery, Kenny Dalgleish and Teenage Fan Club. So that's a pretty high bar. Thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, I came back with an hour-long interview with Joe Russo. In fairness, that's why I was there to attend the inaugural edition of Sands, aka the St. Andrews International Film Festival, and talk to Joe Russo, one half of the Russo brothers, of course, the directors of some of the biggest films of all time. Joe was not just attending the festival, but he was supporting it, both financially and with his presence. And so... In this interview, recorded in a hotel room overlooking what felt like the whole of the town of St. Andrews, including the incredible golf courses and the famous and beautiful West Sands Beach where Chariots of Fire was filmed, we talked about his reasons for backing the festival. But we also talked about how he and his brother, Anthony, got their starts in Hollywood. And we did a deeper dive into their early career, including their films Welcome to Collinwood and You, Me and Dupree and their work in TV on the likes of Arrested Development and Community than we had ever done before on any of our numerous podcast and and magazine interviews over the years. And for all you MCU fans out there, like me, there's a little bit of chat about their work on Captain America the Winter Soldier, Captain America Civil War, Avengers Infinity War, and Avengers Endgame, and how they applied the lessons that they learned on their early films, and from people like Steven Soderbergh, on those behemoths. So why have I waited so long to bring you this interview? Well, simple. The Grey Man, the latest film from the brothers, is the film that adorns this month's issue of Empire Magazine, which is on sale now in all good, evil and virtual newsagents, and I thought it would be neat to give you a Russo's double whammy. This isn't a Grey Man interview, although we do talk about that film a little bit towards the end. For more info on The Grey Man, plus interviews with Joe Russo, Anthony Russo, their writing chums, Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, stars Ryan Gosling, Chris Evans and Reggae John Page. Pick up a new issue. Go on. Treat yourself. Right. Shameless synergizing and plugging over. Here it is, my near hour-long interview with Joe Russo. If you hear coughing towards the end, it was a member of Joe's team. But don't worry, folks. I'm told they're totally fine now. I think. Anyway, here we go. Do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast once again by the wonderful Joe Russo. But this time, Joe, we're not in the offices of Agbo or in a hotel room in London. We are in St. Andrews. Yes. And if we could uh, translate this view to everyone listening, I think they would all all be as impressed as we are. Right? (laughs) Yes. This is a, a very picturesque... Uh, uh, village. It's not bad, is it? It's not bad. So we're we're in a room at the moment overlooking the old course at St. Andrews. Um, but that is not why you're here. You're not here to golf. No, I am not. <laughs> yeah. This is, uh... You're here because uh, you've essentially willed the St. Andrews International Film Festival, Sands, yeah. into, into being. 
Well, it's I gave this uh, I gave this speech yesterday at the festival. Where I was just sort of think, thinking, you know, about what I was going to talk about before I went on stage, and I thought, you know, it's a really long story. Actually, it starts in like 1989 with Soderbergh at the Sundance Film I have Festival. Time. <laughs> I have time for the long version. <laughs> the uh, but the you know it was uh, you know Soderbergh uh, being anointed as a, a you know a sort of regional filmmaker he came out of nowhere. Um, um, he really, uh, people forget this, like motivated an entire wave in the film business in the nineties, which was this, um, you know, sort of the, the micro budget uh, credit card indie wave that fueled, um, um, you know, festivals and the birth of festivals, uh, all over the place. And, uh, you know, you cut to 93 and my brother and I are in Cleveland, Ohio, million miles away from the film business. And um, he's in law school. I'm getting an acting degree. He decided he didn't want to be a lawyer. I decided I didn't want to be an actor. Uh, and, um, you know, we had the film bug. Mm. Rodriguez made a mariachi. He wrote a book about how you could make a film, right, for $7,000, which really wasn't true because Miramax gave him a lot more money to finish the film and to reshoot parts of the movie. And, you know, but the myth was a motivator. Kevin Smith also funding that's right. funding clerks on clerks, credit cards twenty five thousand right. on credit so it's cards. So happening like the Brothers McMullen. Yep. Right there is just you know filmmakers were getting anointed left and right, and it seemed to be the uh, uh, the trend at the at the time was to you know discover voices, regional voices, and then uh, you know they were getting these big deals in Hollywood. And so we thought, well, when we give it a shot, you know, what's the worst that could happen is we go bankrupt, and you know. <laughs> We're in our early twenties, and then we'll figure it out, and you know, uh, run from debtors for the uh, for the rest of our lives. We ended up making a micro budget, cut to ninety seven. That micro budget goes to Slam Dance, mm-hmm. which is this upstart festival across from Sundance. Soderbergh was having issues with Sundance at the time, so he brought his new movie Schizopolis over to Slam Dance. Schizopolis was, in a lot of ways, very similar to our first movie pieces. Sort of nonlinear, crazy, you know, experimental uh, film. You know, our, our pieces was really a very uh, strange movie, uh, but it combined a lot of different genres. I think it, it speaks to what you know we we did throughout our careers, playing with genres and smashing things together, and from Arrested Development to Community mm-hmm. to our work with Marvel and um, Soderbergh uh, wandered into the screening of the film. Uh, you know, 50 people left the theater halfway through, <laughs> you know, and he loved it. Um, and so then you cut to 2013, my daughter is looking at schools and tells me she was really keen on University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And I thought, that's great. I want to promote my kids becoming global citizens. I'm happy for them uh, to study abroad. I think it's good to get outside of the U.S., get a, a global perspective. She came here, we fell in love with the school. Then my son came here, and my nephew, then my two nieces, and suddenly it, you know, it just became like a an institution for the Russo family. All studying the same thing or, or different things? Uh, all studying different things. A few of them studying film here because they have a tremendous mm-hmm. um, film, uh, uh, you know, critical studies program. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and it's just gotten better over time. We've done some fundraisers for film studies program and... Uh, Led to this idea of you know this incredible setting. Why not start a film festival here? Uh, and so the theme of the festival is beginnings. We're supporting first and second time filmmakers. It's that karmic debt that you know my brother and I owe to the universe. We're trying to pay that back by you know creating a platform for new voices to be heard and um, get seen. 
Amazing. And uh, it's, a, it's a hell of a place. And uh, uh, I very much hope it will be a second, third, fourth and onwards. <laughs> we hope well, so too. And we'll try to great. scale it as we go. And I think, yeah. you know, um, Yagbo supporting it. And, yeah. You know, what I love about a university setting is that, uh, you know, you can support a cutting edge approach. And I think as we do try to expand that we look into new media, I'm interested in um, uh, areas that maybe other festivals don't support or something more along the lines of South by Southwest, where you're incorporating um, uh, elements of all media, you know, uh, but doing it in such a way that is very forward thinking and, mm -hmm. and, you know, looking at like content creators and, you know, trying to find Ways to, you know, if you had promoted Bo, Bo Burnham three or four years ago. Yeah. Right? Yeah. When he was a, a content creator who was, you know, using social media as a tool to reach people, uh, he's turned into one of the most interesting voices in America at the moment, you know, for, as, from an artist yeah. standpoint, from a media artist standpoint. So uh, I, I'd love to, uh, I'd love to assist in, in helping find those voices and, and, uh, and giving them a platform. So, um, are you catching some of the films here? Are you aware of the films? Are you trying to? Are you hoping to Soderbergh be Soderbergh for another first time filmmaker? Yes. Yeah, so what it is is, you know, I have links to all the films. I'm watching the films. Everyone at the company's watching the films. You know, we're gonna do what we can to support. Uh, and you know, we have a filmmakers uh, uh, collective at Agbo, so that you know, um, you know, we do this uh, no, no sleep till film fest contest, where the winner of that it's a social media contest becomes part of our filmmakers collective. We give away a scholarship at slam dance every year. That individual becomes part of the filmmakers collective, which really is just ag boat. Any point they can call us and we can support them. We can help them find an agent or a manager, look at their scripts, give them notes, you know, uh, give them advice the way that, you know, Soderbergh did to us, mm -hmm. uh, uh, when we were coming up. So we, it's a sort of a mentorship program. And similarly, we will find a filmmaker or two here that we, that, you know, sort of lines up with, um, with, uh, uh, you know, Agbo in a way that uh, you know we can add them to the filmmakers collective as well. So, so let's uh, let's go back a little bit because obviously we've we've talked a lot, you and I and, and Anthony as well, obviously about your Marvel work yep. uh, over the years. But we haven't really talked so much about the early part of your career, right? Um, and uh, by early, I mean pretty much everything pre Winter Soldier, <laughs> right? So let's go back to to that period where you and Anthony are 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 making pieces. Uh, so how 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 in debt did you guys go? How how hairy is it? <laughs> so you know this is look we had a strong uh, um, you know vibrant uh, extended family in Cleveland that uh, we enlisted to be in the movie to help out behind the scenes. Yeah, so we had a lot of volunteers. We had no idea what to do with the camera. So we started reading some books, you know, sort of self-taught. We were, we were film theory guys. We weren't like guys that were in the backyard with cameras making movies when we were 12 years old. You know, we were guys who were studying film yeah. our entire lives. So, you know, we were, you know, we'd watch uh, um, Apocalypse Now, we were 16 and 17, and then talk about it for days, you know, and then watch it again and stop it and talk and argue about the thematics and, you know, the, the use of light in it. And so everything was very about, it was about analysis and film analysis. And, you know, we had a, a circle of friends who were the same way, and we'd all quote movies to each other endlessly. And, you know, it was a little bit of a Kevin Smith approach, you yeah. know. We were doing some experimental comedy at the time at, at this, you know, our school case Western that we were at. So the first thing Anthony and I ever wrote together was a show that we did. And um, our heaviest influences at, the, at that time were the French New Wave. We loved Truffaut. Mm -hmm. So we sat down to write a Truffaut movie, like this more, the more absurdist elements of Truffaut, mm -hmm. you know? And, um, and we took things that we loved. We were, you know, um, 
you know, intertextualists, you know, because of that film theory background. We started smashing genres into each other. It was totally insane, uh, you know, and um, almost indescribable in how nuts the movie is. You know, it would it had chapters and every chapter was, you know, it's very, uh, it, it's a kissing cousin in a lot of ways to Cherry. I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it had chapters in it and every chapter was something different. And, um, you know, it was just moments of German expressionism that smashed into Italian neorealism and it was all over the place. Uh, and, you know, if you've seen Schizopolis, you know, this Soderbergh plays a lead in it, this yep. part where he's masturbating in it bathroom stall and then he's speaking Chinese halfway through the film and it's all sort of inexplicably Dada-esque uh, and Pieces was uh, similarly so and we loved it you know we really enjoyed making it and I think we prioritize as filmmakers the quality of the experience as much as we prioritize the work right are we being fulfilled by the work that we're doing mm -hmm. and what was the experience of making it and Pieces is something that we just you know remember so fondly even though we're sleeping four hours a day, shooting nights for 32 days. <laughs> uh, and, um, and so it was a really, uh, it was a really unique experience. Mamet was a big influence at the time. Beckett, you know, so you, there's all, a lot of things we're pulling into the movie. These are wild influences, Joe. They are, I mean, yes. it's, it's, it's fascinating. And uh, there are people who are listening to this going, wow, I, I, I want to see this movie. Yeah. Here's, here's the rub. It's something that we've never <laughs> finished. You know, we put a million dollars of music in that film because again, we had no, understanding of the business so we're like yeah somebody will buy the movie and they'll pay for the music that we have zeppelin in it you know it's like uh um so and a lot of the film is cut to the music you know right. it has sort of a um it's tied to the music so we thought once soderbergh discovered us after slam dance we thought all right let's just put it aside for a while and you know let's go become filmmakers maybe at some point we'll make enough money where we can restore the movie and get it released and then it just kept we just kept pushing it and pushing it. Now we're at this point where like, I don't know, does anybody know where the negative is? Like, what's, <laughs> uh, but it's okay. Cause you know, it got us to where we are today and we, we have some, you know, it's stored on a computer somewhere, you know, one day it'll yeah. see the light I think of day. One day. I think we'll just drop it online somewhere. All right. Okay. Yeah. We could we could just drop it online and just and just walk away and hope that you don't get sued. Is that That's the, right. Yes. <laughs> That's the basic idea. Yeah. So so talk me through those initial conversations with with uh, Soderbergh. You said last night in your introduction to the to the film festival that Soderbergh called you guys about a week or so after Slam Dance. He did. It was very strange because we didn't know he was in in the theater. Okay. And you know we had worked really hard up at Slam Dance. So, you know that same family came with us. We had fifty Russos running around plastering you know <laughs> uh, telephone poles with posters, and we had a provocative poster. It was I was a lead in it with a, a buddy of mine. I'd studied abroad in England, and I'd done a play with him. And he came over, and we did this together. You know, we packed the theater, uh -huh. uh, and halfway through, it was unpacked, uh, and then. <laughs> You know, we left and we didn't feel like we got any traction. It must have been demoralizing. It was hugely demoralizing. But in a way, sort of, you know, the thing we've discovered throughout our careers that the things that typically tend to entertain my brother and I uh -huh. don't seem to entertain, you know, larger groups of people. So, you know. It's <laughs> quite a statement from the man who's made the, uh, two of the biggest films of all time. Well, it's interesting <laughs> because I think we, and this is part of the Soderbergh process, right? This all ties back together, um, he taught us how to become commercial filmmakers. We didn't have it in us. We weren't, it wasn't part of our DNA. 
right? We were um, we were interested in uh, you know more extreme uh, structure choices. We're interested in you know um, you know there's a bit of like um, mischief in everything we do. You know, we tend to make fun of things quite a bit, uh, but it's just the process we have because that's what our daily life is like. It's just you know throwing out jokes and making each other laugh and, you know, you know, so it was really, uh, uh, you know, two guys who I think had this very punk rock attitude coming from Cleveland mm. are like, I don't know. We don't, we don't give a fuck. They don't like it. Who cares? <laughs> uh, but he ends up calling and I'm, you know, we're at UCLA student housing. We did it all backwards. We made a movie and then we went to grad school to get a film degree. I was at, at UCLA. He was at Columbia because we we're, stealing their equipment to finish the movie, right? <laughs> and we're using the student loans to pay for the movie, to finish the film. Okay. After yeah. we shot the movie, we left the negative in a refrigerator in our garage for like a year because we didn't have the money to uh, um, to develop it. Jesus. So had there been a blackout, we would have lost the movie. That's, um, that's crazy. So Soderbergh calls us. My wife is cooking mac and cheese. I'm holding our newborn baby. Hmm. I thought it was... Um, uh, one of my buddies from film school fucking with me. Uh, and it's like the Steven Soderbergh. And uh, I, I saw your film. I really loved it. I want to talk to you guys. Can we get some lunch? You know, and I remember at the time, I don't think I said much in response. You know, I think I was like, sure. Yeah, that, that sounds good. Let's do that. As if you get those calls every day, you just act yeah. in blase. Oh, yeah, Steven Soderbergh. Well, it was one of those things where I, I you know, I think the whole time I assumed it was a joke. Okay. Right? So I was like, I'm not going to entertain this joke. Hung up. And then I got a call from um, John Fitzgerald, uh, who was running Slamdance at the time. And he was like, Soderbergh, call you. And I was like, are you kidding me? That was Soderbergh. <laughs> uh, and so we ended up going to lunch with him at this uh, Cuban restaurant called Versailles on Venice. And we had a fascinating conversation with him that I think changed our careers. He said at this lunch, and remember, Soderbergh was the anointed one. Mm -hmm. Right, he made Sex Lives and Videotapes a huge success. Inspired, uh, you know, as I said earlier, a, a new wave of filmmaking. Said something I think about Bruckheimer. I think it was in Rolling Stone that got him in a little bit of trouble. <laughs> sounds right? like, sounds I think he said, "I'll yeah. never make a." I think it was Don Simpson was still alive at that. I'll never make a Simpson Bruckheimer movie, you know. And then Simpson and Bruckheimer are completely offended and you know blacklisted him. Uh, and then he, you know, I think he made Kafka and he made the, uh, um, there was another one, uh, I'm trying to think. It was what King, else King of the Hill. King of the Hill. Yeah. Right. Both, uh, both did not do well at the box office. No, right. That is, that's so, an understatement. Yeah. So we're at lunch and I'm sorry, I'm giving the long version. No, of this. no, no. This is what we want. And, uh, and he says, uh, we say, what are you doing next? He goes, I'm going to make this, uh, genre movie out of sight at Universal, uh, because he can't get my movies financed anymore. And we're like completely blown away because this was sort of our idol, right? This is a guy who's doing shit that's as insane and Dada-esque as we were. And, you know, we thought, you know, there was like an endless supply of like independent money to make <laughs> crazy shit. Uh, and, um, and, you know, here he was like bursting that bubble and saying, no, there's not an endless supply of it. And in fact, you know, uh, if you, it's called show business. I remember the speech he gave us. And he goes, it's a business. If you can't make people money, right? They're going to stop giving you money at a certain point. And so he said, I got to go make this movie, this genre film. Uh, it's kind of cool. Elmore Leonard. We're like, well, who's in it? And he goes, uh, 
George Clooney. And we and we're like, what do you mean, uh, George Clooney, the TV actor from, um, from the hospital show? Uh, <laughs> and and he was like, yeah, that guy. And and we were like, oh god, we we're like, Stephen, come on, you're gonna like kill your career. This is crazy. You're gonna go take this. You're gonna take Clooney because at the time you have to remember, George was the star of like twenty failed pilots, right? Yeah. And you know he had this history uh, uh, in the business of uh, of you know. Um, of uh, not being successful, uh, and um, he was great on the show, but you know nobody knew if he had any range. He'd outside done some of, movies right? by that point, but they weren't huge hits. Peacemaker and One right. Fine Day, things yes. like that. I think he had done. Maybe he'd done. Was he Batman by that point? I can't he, remember. Okay, uh, but I remember there was a, a a moment of like real terror for us, you know, and real concern <laughs> for him, uh, and. Um, you know, we were working on this. He said, look, you guys need a script because we got to go out and, and get a, a movie made for you. We can't do it without a script. So we sat down, we started working on two films. One was a side project that we'd work on when we, you know, got writer's block on the larger project. The larger project was something called Murray Hill that I'm sure we'll make at some point, which was this, a giant gang war set in Cleveland in the, in the 70s around the unions. Um, and it involved a couple of different crime syndicates, okay. you know, at war with each other. And it was a sprawling, really expensive movie. You know, f sort of a fairly straight narrative for how experimental pieces was. Uh, and um, and then in our spare time, we were working on Welcome to Collinwood, which was a remake of a great Italian comedy. Uh, and it was something we just do to make ourselves laugh when we, you know, we, um, we dried up with ideas on um, Murray Hill. Uh, so we're working on those two scripts and Soderbergh goes to make Out of Sight. Mm -hmm. We go to visit him on set. We're the sort of, you know, two um, Goombas sitting in the corner. We look like Teamsters, you know? <laughs> uh, and I remember people always asking who we were. And we're like, we're Steven's buddies. Uh, you know, we'd sit, kind of sit really close to set so we could watch him direct the actors. There's a point I think where he started operating or he would sit, you know, he sits right next to the lens. Okay. He watches the performance as the lens, uh, as if he were the lens. Um, so he stays real clear. He doesn't sit behind a monitor. Yeah. Uh, and then that evolves into this process of just operating. Um, so we're learning a lot from him as he was going through it. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I remember going to see the film with my wife when it came out. And my jaw hit the floor. And I was like, I think that's his best movie. And it, it struck us that this filmmaker who had crafted a career uh, um, because of his artistic credentials and his individual voice uh, went to a studio mm -hmm. because he was desperate uh, and made a movie with an actor that, you know, scared us. Mm. Uh, and Clooney delivered an incredible performance and of course then became George Clooney. And, and Soderbergh delivered his best film. And I thought, wow, we were like the hubris we had to sit there and think, you know, that he was going to destroy his career. Uh, it made us think about, you know, our, our own perception of the business and what we wanted to do in it. Uh, and, you know, he then opened Section 8 at Warner Brothers mm -hmm. uh, with Clooney. And... You know, he told uh, Ben Cosgrove he hired to uh, run Section 8. The, you know, I started this company to help out guys like the Rooster Brothers, help out, you know, younger filmmakers. Uh, and so we 
we're going to get one of our films made. So we went and sat on the couch every day at that office in the, again, here are the two gumas sitting in the lobby of section eight, you know, with a phone in the corner that was basically because they didn't have an extra office. So we would operate out of their lobby. Uh, and we were hustling to try to get people in either Murray Hill or Welcome to Collinwood. We we're going to see which one we can get off the ground first. And we watched him and Clooney uh, make the Oceans movies, right? But then we also watched Stephen make Traffic. And we saw this trajectory to his career, uh, which was one for you, one for them. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was using his commercial capital, which he learned to do on Out of Sight, to finance the crazier ideas that he had. Uh, and I remember all the wisdom that we got from he and Clooney over the years as they would come in that office every day and find us in the corner and they'd sit down and, you know, give us speeches about, you know, one for you, one for them, or have a list, you know, if someone's an asshole, they go on the list and they never come off it and never work with that person. And, you know, they're very particular about, you know, mm. their rules and about passing along uh, information to us and guidance and experience to us. Uh, and that's how, you know, just that period from that lunch at Versailles through those next five years is really how our brains started to understand the business of making movies. So, so when you look back, for example, the, the, uh, that idea of one of you, one for them, uh, which you, you hear people will say some, from time to time is about, you know, making big movies like, like right. Infinity War and Endgame. Obviously, you and Anthony made four of those movies in a row. Do you see those as building up a cachet so you can make things like Cherry uh, ultimately down the line? Or were they, how much of those movies were for you and how much of them were those movies were for them? So we started, we had, okay, so we had the, uh, we were fortunate enough to have the experience of watching what Stephen and George did with Section 8. Yeah. Uh, and if you go look at the, you know, the roster of people who went through there, it's pretty impressive, the people that they helped out. Um, but I remember Steven getting burned out and going like, this is too much work to produce, you know, and they shut the company down and he left and, you know, he was like, I just want to focus on my movies. Uh, and then he started going back to much more personal filmmaking, which he's been doing, you know, for a while now. And I remember having a conversation with him in the, you know, in the 2010s, early 2010s saying, you know, because we were in television at the time. And I said, look, man, it's the new ind indie filmmaking is in TV, you know, you, and you get a lot more money to do it, you know, and you get a lot more support and you can get, um, uh, so you can tell, and you can tell your stories for longer, you know, so you can really invest in the characters. And then he did his show. Uh, and um, so I felt like, you know, we were starting to like feed each other information over the years about mm -hmm. how we were seeing the business. And Anth and I, uh, just to give you our trajectory to tell you how we got to Marvel and what Marvel meant to us. Of course. Right. We, we got a pilot. Uh, we made Welcome to Collinwood instead of Murray Hill. Because mm -hmm. remember the time that Steven, you know, was like, we got to get it started, play the lead in Murray Hill. And, you know, it was uh, centered around an Italian kid from a neighbor that we grew up in. And he was pitching guys who were in Italian. And we're like, well, we can't, it's not really authentic. We can't really ask somebody to pretend like they're Italian. We're going to get like a really, you know, shitty sort of, commercial interpretation of who this character is. <laughs> uh, and he was like, all right, fine, whatever. Let's do the comedy, you know? Yeah. Uh, we made the comedy. Comedy didn't make any money, right? Uh, it uh, made negative money at the box office. Uh, but we were lucky enough to get a show called Lucky at the time mm -hmm. uh, that um, we shot in a very verite style. 
uh, um, reflective of Man Bites Dog, which is a film we loved out of uh, Cannes Film Festival. Mm -hmm. And um, that led to Arrested Development. So suddenly our sort of independent uh, um, genes were valuable in the TV space because as I said, in the 1990s, independent film was thriving. But in the early 2000s, when um, The Sopranos was made, uh, and shows started to become more cinematic and have more challenging thematics and deeper characters and more interesting material, all those indie filmmakers started gravitating towards TV mm -hmm. uh, because that sensibility was working uh, in that space. So we started getting um, calls from the TV space. So we made Lucky, which was a really dark, twisted show uh, uh, about a, a, a degenerate gambler in Vegas. It was high comedy, but it was also like, his wife died from a drug overdose and the pilot ends with him giving back uh, uh, the engagement ring uh, um, to, to his dead wife's parents to, as a way to um, pay, pay them back for money he'd stole from them. So it was really nuts, uh, pilot, just from a tonal standpoint. And that led to Arrested Development, which led to community and sort of we became guys who had very potent juice in television where we could control creatively the shows that we were working on. We didn't make anybody any money, by the way. You know, Arrested Development didn't make any money until <laughs> yeah. many years later. Lucky didn't make any money. In fact, I canceled after one season. Yeah. And Community really didn't make any money until years later when, you know, um, digital distributors started buying these older shows and, you know, putting them uh, on their platform in order to get uh, um, some eyeballs, you know, yeah. get some content. Still never quite got six seasons in a movie, though. We didn't we did get the no. movie part. I think we might get that movie at some point. I don't know. Yeah, that'd be nice. Uh, but so our transit, so we started looking at the business in a different way because we were becoming these um, ubiquitous producers in television. We, I think we directed 10 or 11 pilots over a certain period of time, put 10 of them on the air. I remember at one point we had three shows on the Paramount lot. We had seven stages. You know, we basically owned half the Paramount lot for these shows we were working on. We started developing a post process that could um, incorporate all these shows. It was, you know, digital where we could uh, uh, work out of the same space to uh, post the shows uh, and literally hit a button and send them to all the affiliates to get them on the air. So we were thinking... And more of now like a, you know, mega producer kind of mindset. Like how do we, because I think we have high functioning ADHD and we like to, we like to work on a lot of projects at the same time. We like to express ourselves mm. in different ways. We get bored fairly quickly with um, one sort of uh, tone. Mm. Um, and so we started looking at that as like the, like what the power it was giving us working on those shows was infectious because it allowed us to make decisions without compromise on the business side, because I think our brains were starting to understand, you know, like how to deliver things in a way that they would, they would suck up pop culture oxygen, like arrest development or community, yeah. which made them harder to cancel, even though they weren't, you know, highly commercial. Yeah. Right. And it was always our dream then to build our own studio. And when we got the Marvel opportunity, we saw that as a potential to leverage, you know, um, these big commercial plays into raising capital to start our own studio. So that at the end of the day, we could just really be our own bosses. And that's, that's the track we took. So even though we did four for them, and mm -hmm. I, I don't say that, uh, I say that in jest because 
we loved making those movies. Absolutely loved making them. Um, we love those films, but it led us to uh, a very particular place. Cause one of the lessons we learned, sorry, last thing I'll say is <laughs> Soderbergh. Soderbergh had a Soderbergh famously ended up kind of walking away from the business because he was so pissed off. Yeah, he had a um, really shitty experience with Sony, and uh, and threw up his hands on a film and said, "Fuck it, I'm not working with studios anymore." And so we thought, can we get to a place where we have enough leverage where we don't have that problem, you know, moving forward? And so again, everything that we've done in our careers has come from Stephen in some way, or learning from Stephen in some way. There's a, a lot to dig into uh, there with, with, with that. Uh, let's go back, first of all, to, to Welcome to Collingwood, because that is, that is a movie that, as you say, was produced by, by Stephen. George Clooney was, was on there as producer right. as well. And uh, he took a role in it to help us get it made. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I'm just fascinated by the fact, you know, you guys made pieces for, well, pieces and, and just, you know, <laughs> put it together with some sticky tape and, and whatever was knocking around at the time. Yeah. Then you find yourself in Welcome to Collingwood with uh, a crew, actors, known actors, name actors for the first time. George Clooney's there, William H. Macy's there, Sam Rockwell, Michael Cheater. Amazing, amazing actors. What's, what's, what does that do to you guys? How did you cope with that, that transition? Well, so Pieces was literally a crew of like six, seven people working yeah. together every night, right? We would do our own makeup. You know, we, you know, we, would, you know, we had no playback, obviously, right? So... The DP that we had found was a great guy named Dave Litz, who was like the only guy in Cleveland who knew how to operate a camera and, you know, was doing some, you know, commercials and things like that. Uh, so you had to trust Litz. We go, did we get it? And you go, well, we got it. You know, and we didn't see anything until like a year later, you know. Um, so we just had to keep our fingers crossed that we got what we needed in the can. Uh, and so when we got to Collinwood, yes, it was very different. It was hard to get that movie made. Again, weird film, not like a you know, a highly accessible movie. And I'm shocked that George and Steven promoted it to get made through Warner Brothers um, um, because it was not a film that, you know, should have been released on more than like 20 screens, you know? <laughs> uh, and so it was really an experiment to see if they could get the kinds of movies that they liked made through the Warner Brothers system. Yeah. Uh, and um, I do remember the first day we showed up on set, Anthony and I drove together and as we started to approach the set, we got really nervous because there were trucks everywhere. And we thought, the fuck is going on here? We have to shoot here today. And there's clearly some sort of, you know, event going on uh, uh, with all these trucks. And, you know, we got out <laughs> and we started to realize this was our crew and they were setting up, you know, for, uh, for the day. Uh, and the scale of it was... Um, disconcerting to us because, you know, we were used to sort of controlling everything because we were, we were putting up the lights ourselves and the C stands and cooking, uh, you know, lunch for everybody every day. I mean, it was like, you know, uh, uh, to suddenly have that taken out of your hands and learning how to collaborate with not, not just an extended group of people, but hundreds of people. Yeah. Uh, that was a real lesson for us in that movie. Uh, and we had sort of very rigid, rules about how we wanted to execute the movie. We wanted it to look like a Bowery Boys film because we loved the Bowery Boys growing up. So everything had to be done studio mode, you know, and, and in a style of, you know, a 30s film. It couldn't, yeah. you know, so we're following all the rules. I think we used a steady cam once. We cheated uh, for a walk and talk. But, um, uh, you know, we were really uh, um, militant in our uh, prescription of, uh, 
of how we wanted it executed and it learned a ton, you know? And again, you know, we, Steven pulled about 8 million out of Warner brothers to make this movie. This movie should be made for 2 million bucks. Um, and, um, and so we learned that, uh, you know, if you make a film that doesn't work in a studio system and it doesn't work for the people who are giving you the money, uh, and you're trying to jam a square peg in a round hole, um, you're probably not going to have a good experience. Hmm. Uh, and so again, that was a real uh, lesson for us. How do you then communicate to your crew? You know, that it's okay, guys, we know what we're doing. Because, you know, I've been lucky enough. I mean, obviously, you know, there's many years between Collingwood and, and Infinity War, but I was lucky enough to be on set, you know, watching you guys direct on Infinity War. And there, it was such a smooth process mm -hmm. just watching you guys direct this this huge behemoth of a, of yep. a film. Um, so how did you do that? How did you convince the, the crew in Collingwood? That it's okay, trust us. We know, we know what we're doing. Well, we have two advantages, I think. We had two advantages at the time. One was because we're a directing duo, we collaborate on a daily basis, which means that we have to talk through our ideas with each other, uh, that the ideas get vetted by one another. Mm -hmm. We have a pretty fierce process. I mean, you see the two of us on set sometimes. We're like, we're arguing like two Italian guys would argue on a street corner, right? So uh, uh, people like back up, you know. <laughs> Are you guys okay? Yeah, we're fine. Just give us five minutes and this will get hashed out. Uh, so that's part of our process. So we're used to communicating because we have to. Not only do we have to communicate, but sometimes we communicate in a way that like, you know, a high school debate club will communicate because we, we fight with each other so much about our ideas that, you know, it becomes about who's wittier or who, who can make their point more oh, so clearly. You're not really rap battling, is that? We, is we it? do. <laughs> and um, it's. so it's this, uh, uh, you know, there's a process there that we're unafraid of conversation. We yeah. have to be. Uh, and uh, the second thing we have going for us is we come from a really big Italian family. Mm -hmm. So we're used to sort of the, you know, the politics of, of, of a large uh, unit, you know, large um, um, community. Uh, and so we're able to, translate those skills into working with a crew. Cause really at the end of the day, I tell young directors this all the time, directing is truly about communication and it's about making decisions. If you do those two things well and efficiently and under pressure, you can direct. Um, and uh, um, because when you take the practical elements, you do all that work in a room of writing a script, take the Coens for example, right? 90% of the work they do is done in a room before they get to set. Mm -hmm where I think the two of them probably, their process is incredibly mysterious. So I'm just guessing here. But my assumption is the two of them in a room talk through. Uh, uh, they have a very disciplined process because they work a lot. They write a lot of scripts. My assumption is they sit in a room and they hash these things out on an, a, you know, a granular level of detail. Uh, and then you know, just anecdotally, the stories that they've heard on set is that they're pretty clear about what they want based on what the script is. You know, and then uh, and then when they get an editorial, they edit it. So it's all you know under their control from start to finish. Um, but um, uh, you know, their decisions are made um, in the room. You know, uh, and then I think made again uh, at the end. I've heard that they're open to ideas, but they're usually, you know, if it's not better than their idea. It's not going to be in the movie. You know, and it's hard to come up with an idea that's better than their idea. Um, <laughs> this is true. So, you know, that, that, so our process was uh, um, communication. And, uh, and I think we just started fudging our way through it a little bit. Yeah, you get George Clooney on set and you're like, oh my God, how do we, 
we, I had a, some experience as an actor, so I knew how to talk to actors. I could talk about beats, yeah. you know, uh, and we make a lot of jokes on set because we like to keep it loose. Yeah. You know, you want to keep, it's hard work. People are working 12, 13, 14 hours. So you want to keep them invested in a way. And if they're having fun and they feel connection to you, they feel warmth, uh, they'll work harder, you know, and we'll all work harder for each other because we care. Um, so we just started using humor and we started, you know, uh, uh, using our infectious energy to drive everyone through it. We learned a ton. I think we made a lot of mistakes on that movie, but mistakes that we love. Uh, and like, you know, you learn more from your failures than you do for, from your successes. And that's absolutely true. That certainly seems to be something that's, that, that plays into, you know, the work you guys did for Marvel, where you have forged these wonderful relationships with people that you've worked again with, obviously, you know, Chadwick, you know, God rest him and Chris Hemsworth, you're doing a couple of films, with Chris Hemsworth, Tom Holland, Chris Evans, you're back again, yep. you know, so was that something that did you work with Zoe on another movie? Yeah. So presumably that's something that you were. Yeah. Almost consciously doing, forging these relationships with actors? No, I just think that, okay, so we, TV was really valuable to us as filmmakers. It's another um, adage I give to young filmmakers. I say, look, if you want to be a carpenter, you got to make a lot of tables. (laughs) Yeah. You want to be a good filmmaker, you better go out and shoot. 10,000 hours. Yes, that's it. Uh, Now, where kids today have an advantage is they're already putting in those 10,000 hours on TikTok. You know, they understand storytelling in 30 seconds or a minute. They understand framing, you know, uh, content creators or self-generators. Um, you know, they're, they're going to film school on their own and they're doing it from the time they're, you know, 10 years old. Um, so there's an instinctual uh, um, skill set that they have. So th- there's sort of an instinctual um, uh, skill set that they have. Uh, uh, for us, you know, I think that uh, that work we did in television it was so, there was so much volume we were doing and it was all so different. We were doing half hour comedies, hour long dramas, shooting styles were different on all of them. We're using, the first guys used digital cameras on, in, in, uh, on a narrative television show with Arrested Development. Uh, so we were experimenting with technology. We created this whole, as I said, this whole post process that allowed us to just, you know, literally shoot on the stage, uh, get in a golf cart, go two buildings down, walk into our post facility, uh, edit, sound design, music, uh, uh, you know, uh, mix, and hit a button and send it all out from the same location. So it was just so much volume happening um, that you know we're becoming um, you know really adept at um, at the process of making content, uh, and uh, and we liked having relationships where we had a shorthand with people. It made the work more efficient. It made the work easier. And you tend, like anything in work, you identify people that you connect to, that you can have fun with, that you know, that we could tell jokes with, and mm-hmm. they would entertain us and we would entertain them. So the in-between time was filled with you know, quality of life moments. That's why we return to you know, a lot of the same actors over and over again. It's that shorthand. We want to see them. They're our friends. We want to hang out with them. We want to spend five months together. Um, that experience we had making uh, Cherry with Tom Holland is like some of the, you know, the best six months any of us have ever had together. We had an absolute blast. Uh, and again, we value that. It's really important to us. Um, so that's why uh, we work with the same actors over and over. 
when you move into TV after you me and Dupree, um, I, which I don't know if that was a, a, a good experience for you or not. I mean, it was not a but, great experience. Again, learning more from your failures than you do from your successes. That was one that I think that Anth and I felt like we were sixth in line for control on that movie, you know? And it was somewhere after the composer, you know, like <laughs> that's the level of control we felt that we had on that. And it was a, you know, it, it was weird because we were in credit card debt from pieces for quite a long time. You know, we ended up having carrying like $60,000 in credit card debt for a while. And even though we were working in film, we were sort of splitting our fees. I mean, working in television, sorry, we were splitting our fees. On Collinwood, we gave back all the money that we made on that movie to pay for two extra days because we were pissed at the, um, these are all hard lessons you learn. Uh, but uh, we didn't make a dime on Welcome to Collinwood, zero money. So uh, we're again, living off our student loans. We were pretending like we were still going to film school while we were making the movie. Um, and, uh, and so we were carrying all this debt. Uh, uh, and we got an opportunity. Somebody called and said, do you guys want to do a commercial comedy? And we thought, well, we're doing so much comedy and TV. We'd want an Emmy for Arrested Development. This might be the only kind of offers we get on the future side. We were more than happy in the TV space. Because like I said, we worked ourselves into a position where we had an incredible amount of control. And yeah. we can get projects greenlit. We can get them put on the air. Uh, and we loved who we were working with. I mean, you know, uh, community was an absolute blast outside of Chevy Chase. Uh, and so, <laughs> well, there's a separate podcast right there. Yes. I think <laughs> the, uh, uh, so we're in this position where, um, we get this phone call, uh, um, from universal about this project and Owen Wilson's involved. It was just coming off of, um, he was just coming off of, uh, what was the movie with uh, him and Vince? Um, oh, Wedding Crashers. Wedding Crashers, yeah. right? Yeah. And we're like, okay, great. But we want Mitch Hurwitz from Arrested Development to rewrite the script, you know, and the writer who we love, uh, 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 but there was a, a writer on, uh, on the Owen project who was really close with Owen. Great guy. Uh, and uh, I remember we were pushing to get Mitch and, you know, we're like six weeks out and they kept saying, yes, yes, we're going to get you Mitch. Don't worry, we're going to get you Mitch. Uh, and then five weeks out, we're like, wait, where's Mitch? Uh, and, you know, it was just, they steamrolled us, you know, into a process. And uh, I remember thinking, um, oh, so this is how it works. You know, like we're not, you know, we, we don't have that level of control that we have in television. Uh, and, uh, and we made the film uh, and the film did what it did. I mean, it, it actually was the first thing I think we ever did that actually made money. Um <laughs> Because uh, every show we ever made, you know, if it was critically acclaimed, it was off the air in two or three years. Uh, Community had such a strange existence, you know. Yeah, bizarre. With Harmon, without Harmon, canceled, uncanceled, you know, same thing with Arrested, right? Canceled after three seasons and then comes back on Netflix years later. So uh, everything we had made had some sort of messy um, um, financial existence. Uh, the movie made money, but it was not a great experience for us. Um, and, you know, I typically don't like to talk about these things because it's not, you know, I, I, I do it because I think it helps to educate people, but I'm not here to shit talk. And I'm not here to say, of like, course, yeah. we're responsible for whatever choices we make in our life. We're responsible for the work that we do. But it was a hard lesson that we learned about how studios work versus how television works. Uh, and it was another lesson after Collinwood that we learned about don't make content that a studio doesn't want to pr produce because you're going to square, square peg around hole it. Uh, second hard lesson we learned was, you know, you have to be in control, uh, and understand you're in control 
and get the things that you're asking for before you commit or they're going to steamroll you. And so weirdly, when we went to that first meeting with Marvel, because we were like, we're not making movies. Why do we do that? We're in television. We're having fun. We love. Had you been pitching on big projects, big movies during that, that time? The, you know, TV? it was only, so again, it was only comedy that people wanted us for. Yeah. And I think part of the reason comedies don't work today in theaters is because it's the most predictive model of storytelling. And I think theatrical has for a while subconsciously been moving towards eventized films because it's expensive. You have to remember, like, it's hard for people, especially people out, outside the US, UK, to, uh, to, go to, to go to the theater. It costs a lot of money. When you can watch 40, you know, stories on Netflix or one for the equivalent price, you know, you're probably going to choose the 40. So when we go in for Marvel, Feige, who's a genius, had watched uh, the paintball episodes of Community, right? Community was just an exercise in genre. That's really what the show was, right? Dan was Dan is a fascinating guy. We had a really interesting, complex relationship, the three of us, me, my brother, and Dan. Uh, and, and I'm sure Dan will tell you stories at some point about, you know, I mean, that show is crazy. Um, but we explored what we could do with that um, ensemble mm. for about 12 episodes. And then we went, well, fuck, are we going to, like, do we have to do this for five years? Like, where's this, where this, where's the storytelling going to go? Are we, is every episode going to be about there's a problem? And then, you know, uh, the problem gets resolved in 22 minutes. And um, I think we're all restless with the format. Mm. And that's when, and it was Dan who said, why don't we start using genres, different genres, mm. and, and putting this applique on top of the show to create a more unique show. And as filmmakers, we love that because, again, these are, we're students of film, gives us an opportunity every week to play around. And so every week became a different exercise in filmmaking. Feige loved that. He watched those paintball episodes and went, I think these guys understand action storytelling but i love that they can do humor too and that's the secret sauce of marvel right is that you know it's it has humor uh and heart and emotion and spectacle um but it has humor you know you're hard pressed to find a marvel movie that doesn't have humor in it somewhere mm -hmm. uh and uh and we went in the room to pitch on it but we were comfortable enough with where we were in tv at the time that we we're pretty adamant about our vision we're adamant about executing that vision and we're adamant about having control because we're like, look, we, you know, we produce TV constantly. So we're a little bit of a machine, you know, and we know how to execute efficiently. And we went through a process. There's a lot of filmmakers fighting for the movie. Uh, our pitch was to turn everything on its head and, you know, sort of throw out what they had done in the first film in a weird way. You know, let's, let's go postmodern with it. Uh, and when we got the job, they were true to their word and that they gave us a lot of room. And they did for every project we did for them. So it was a completely different experience that we'd had in the past. But Kevin, again, is a great collaborator and he's very trusting. Like, if you win his trust, you know, you can do whatever you want. You know, he'll, he'll support you. He'll support your crazy ideas. He'll support, you know, taking his two lead characters and having them try to kill each other will support you killing half his characters and support you killing Iron Man, you know? Um, and, uh, and so we had a fantastic time working with them 
uh, because, you know, we had a great level of control. Again, like, again, we're not afraid of collaboration. So all Kevin ultimately cares about is, can he come in a room with you and hang out? And he's amazing at pitches, like, and pitch on what you're working on. Mm. So he had us and my brother and Marcus McFeely and Kevin, and he would come in every two or three weeks and he'd just sit for the day. And, you know, we talk about where we're at, you know, because we have a very disciplined process of developing um, um, screenplays. That's really what Agbo is, is me, Anth, Marcus McFeely, taking all the work we'd done, the codified process we had created mm. working with Marvel and translating it to our own studio. Uh, and, you know, we'd start with a three-page outline and that would take months because we'd all argue about what the story is and Kevin would come in and he'd argue about it with us and we'd throw out ideas and Nate Moore was a huge collaborator, was a, a executive at Marvel. Uh, and then we'd go to a 10 to 20 page uh, outline and then you know, we'd do the same thing and Kevin would pop in and read where we're at. We'd all talk about it, everybody fight about it. Then we'd do some more work and then he'd come back in. And then when you go off to make the movie, they're very hands off, you know? It's sort of your, see, it's your bed to make in a lot of ways. <laughs> uh, and Marvel really is sort of the, where those famous stories come from about, you know, uh, people, uh, getting put on the sidelines or, you know, mm -hmm. them coming in and post. It's really about how you deliver your director's cut. Cause you know, filmmaking, you get prescribed a window in which you, the director gets a cut and then the producer comes in and the producer becomes part of the process with you. Uh, where I've seen issues is when a director's cut gets delivered and it's not what they were expecting or it's not working. Mm -hmm. uh, then, you know, Marvel turns it on and um, they come in and start to work with, the filmmaker in a much heavier way to develop uh, um, fixes for the movie. And then they go into extensive reshoots and, you know, but um, part of our process, Anthony and I was that we would, we tend to reshoot while we're shooting because we will go into editorial at night. You know, we're exhausted. We're sleeping three hours a night, but we're watching what we're shooting and we're assessing it. And if there's a problem, we're fixing it the next day before we tear the set down. We go get a close up or we rewrite the end of a scene with Marcus McFeely or we, you know, whatever it is, we address it uh, so that our director's cuts were really comprehensive um, and, uh, and really polished. Um, and that's really the, that was the process at, uh, at Marvel. Yeah. The number of times I've spoken to people who've worked on Marvel movies where they've said that Kevin will come in and be sitting in pitch meetings and story meetings and then just out of nowhere he'll he'll drop a bomb he'll go why don't we have all the spider-man villains in this movie and suddenly he's like oh wow so he'll just sit there quietly and just boom yeah he's amazing like the his brain is is amazing his sensibility for commercial material is incredible anthony i learned very early on that when we watched so you do a screening with kevin right you see you sit and watch your director's cut with you and if you look over at him and he's leaning forward, you know the movie's going to work. And when he's leaning backwards, <laughs> you know, like just from a test audience standpoint, like he can sense exactly where that movie isn't going to connect with an audience. Uh, and it's innate. It's inside of him because he loves storytelling so much. Uh, and that was always a great litmus test for us because we'd kind of side-eye Kevin just to see whether he's leaning backwards or forwards uh, while he was watching the film. <laughs> 
<laughs> Amazing. Uh, so two real quick questions, Joe. Yeah. Uh, um, I cannot forgive myself if I didn't ask about Extraction 2 and The Grey Man. Yeah. Uh, where are we with, with both those movies and what else you guys got on your slate? So Extraction 2 just wrapped. It just came from Prague. I was there uh, um, with Sam Hargrave and Hemsworth uh, for a couple of weeks. Uh, it's, uh, it's certainly uh, scaled up from the first movie. Um, it was interesting going on the ride to discover what that uh, franchise was because initially I had envisioned, you know, killing him and going backwards mm-hmm. for storytelling purposes. I thought it'd be interesting to tell a, um, a franchise in reverse, you know, but the practical execution of that is because, you know, Hemsworth isn't aging in reverse. Um, of, <laughs> he's, you know, he's so far off, but yeah. Yeah. yeah by the way, <laughs> yeah. is there anybody on the planet that has a shot at aging in reverse? It's him. Yeah. Uh, but, um, it just felt like it was going to be more complicated than was necessary for a franchise. Uh, so we ended up going forward with it. Uh, but really, really excited about where it's headed. Uh, and uh, Gray Man might be uh, my favorite film that Anthony and I have made. Uh, because it, um, you know, action is... Uh, um, really close to our hearts. We grew up watching action films with our dad. He loved them. We'd watch The Late Show with him, French Connection. It was a huge influence on us. Um, and I feel like there's a, a really nice blend in this movie between action that we love, um, our humor, mm-hmm. and our quirkiness. And I think it's sort of all wrapped up in there in a way that, um, and, and you know, tone is the hardest thing to manage as a filmmaker. If a movie doesn't work, it's because the tone is either uh, poorly executed or it's inconsistent mm-hmm. in a way that is illogical, right? And your brain mm-hmm. can't track mm-hmm. it. So the things we get most excited about are tonal experimentation. Uh, um, and, you know, you're like a mad scientist going into the laboratory and you're hoping you don't blow yourself up because you're mixing, you know, beakers of chemicals uh, in a way that um, could be disastrous. You know, you could wind up with something that um, uh, is not good. Uh, and uh, I'm really excited about this one because um, I think it uh, it works on a lot of levels. Obviously, we'll see how the audience responds to it, but for us as filmmakers, we're very satisfied with it. Very happy. Amazing. Well, I can't wait to see uh, both of those films. In my review of Extraction, I noted that Tyler Rake at one point fights someone with a rake right. in a triumph of nominative determinism. Yeah. And uh, I posited the idea that he might fight a character called Keith Dildo in the sequel. <laughs> right. uh, Joe, can you confirm or deny whether there is a character called Keith Dildo in Extraction 2? There is not a Keith Dildo uh, in Extraction 2, but you know what's interesting is that Anth and I, over the years, uh, have made fun of movies as much as we've enjoyed them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's, uh, you know, like I said earlier, there's always a bit of mischief uh, <laughs> in, uh, in, our, in our filmmaking. And uh, I remember the two of us sitting around talking about what we we're going to name that character from Extraction. <laughs> and, uh, and, and we have to amuse ourselves as much as we have to sort of honor the movies that we grew up on. <laughs> and we were like, Let's, you know, I think we went through like three or four gardening tools before we settled on Rake. Oh, Rake. As the, uh, I mean, ho, space, as the last name for shovel, the character. wheelbarrow. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's everything we do is sort of uh, self, uh, self-reflexive and it has this, uh, you know, love of movies while taking the piss out of them all at the same time. And we feel like if we can, you just go back and look at Community Arrested, what we did on Community Arrested Development. Mm-hmm. If we can 
tell a story that entertains the audience that wants to be there for an action film, but also then tell a story, you know, that, um, that has a certain level of wit to it, uh, uh, for people who like to deconstruct movies, then we feel like we win. And then finally, uh, you're on your own here this this, right. this yeah. week, and you write the extraction movies on your own as That's well. Right. You mentioned the Coen Brothers earlier on. I mean, you know, uh, Joel made the, the the tragedy of Macbeth on his own. That's uh, right. This this isn't the the uh, the precursor of a, a Russo brothers split, is it, Joe? Uh, it is not. Although <laughs> I got to tell you that uh, that Ethan's review of uh, <laughs> yeah, I saw that Beth was brilliant, uh, and. Um, a scathing, 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 scathing. Finally nailed uh, Joel Cohen to the mast. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, no, I think you know over the years, um, you know, even though we're a duo, we always look at it uh, um, from the perspective that we can get a lot more work done because there's two of us. So we have a real divide and conquer mentality, and you do it for so long together that you're going to come up with the same answer. So it's like why? why put our energy into the same space at the same time when it could be in different places, um, giving the same answer to different people. You know? <laughs> so Anthony's doing another interview right That's now. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, Joe, I presume credit card debt is all paid now. You're good? Uh, it, it, it has been paid off. I think somewhere around 2009, it got paid off. Uh, <laughs> Must be a hell of a feeling. Hell of a feeling to pay it off was, finally. It was. It was yeah. like get, you know, getting rid of those student loan debts. <laughs> it's, a, it's a hell of yeah. a thing. Uh, Joe Russo, always a pleasure. Great to see you, man. Thank you. Take, Take care. care. And that was Joe Russo sadly confirming that there isn't a character called Keith Dildo in Extraction 2, which feels a bit like a missed opportunity for me. But that is it for this Empire Podcast interview special. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As I said earlier, if you want even more from Joe Russo and his brother Anthony, pick up the new issue of Empire, now on sale in all good, evil and virtual news agents, and read all about how they made the Grey Man. It's good stuff, even if I do say so myself. If you want more Empire Podcast, there's a new episode out every Friday. And if you want more Russos talking about their films... Sign up to our spoiler special podcasts where we have in-depth interviews with them about Captain America the Winter Soldier, Captain America Civil War, and Avengers Endgame. No Infinity War, you may notice. We didn't quite make that happen at the time. Perhaps we'll fix it one day. And if you want more information about the Sands Film Festival at St. Andrews, go to sands-iff.com. That's sands-iff.com. IFF.com. This year's inaugural edition was a big success, so fingers crossed that it becomes a regular thing. Right, that's enough for me. I'm off to have a tonics before hitting a few balls at my local driving range, trying to fix my swing. I'm slicing quite a lot. Not quite sure what to do. Any advice would be gratefully accepted. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.